similarly as well. I will declare it forever. I will sing the praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, uh, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So these are two major themes, the self-exaltation of the horn. In other words, whoever this addressee is, the wicked, they're being arrogant, they're being haughty, they're being proud. And also, um, you could get this just from reading the English, uh, but it's very conspicuous in the Hebrew too, is uh, lifting up. If you just let your eyes glance over the psalm and see how many times this one word appears, room uh, is the word in Hebrew. And over and over again, the density of that one word is really striking when you get into the weeds, so to speak, on this psalm. Okay, So they're exalting their own horn. They're lifting up their own horn. They're full of pride. They're full of arrogance. Uh, this is um, one of the main uh, messages inserted uh, in um, this psalm, which starts off with a note of thanksgiving. Um, then I have this long interjection on silence um, because I was supposed to make this accessible to the ever ubiquitous intelligent layperson. And so I have all these commercial breaks uh, in here, you know, quoting from a novel or a poem or whatever. Um, and um, as I said <clears throat> at the uh, beginning of the Sunday school class, in these asaphic psalms, silence is a major repeating motif. And even though I took my cue from this one person who described Psalm 50, I think, correctly, declaring the heavens will break through with the justice of God, and he will speak. We saw that. And then each, remember, Psalm 73 to 83 are all about test cases where silence is tested against that thesis. So whether it's the destruction of the temple, whether it's the ever-rich, wicked person who's being blessed and not cursed, and that causes bewilderment on the part of the psalmist. Um, each, each one of these have a particular something to add to this notion of silence. So in this case, I think what's striking is God says he won't be silent. He will come as a judge. Very common theme preached from pulpits throughout America these days, right? I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, verse 6 through 8 continue this whole theme of justice as well. Um, not from the east, not from the west, nor from the wilderness. So it, it seems here this, the main point is not to get too tied down with the details orientation-wise here. Uh, but he's going through the uh, points on the compass and just saying, um, not anywhere else, but from God himself, judgment will come. It's God who executes judgment. He's the one who puts down one and lifts up another. Uh, um, and then the hand of the Lord, there is a cup of foaming wrath. Well mixed, he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So remember this cup metaphor is often used, not always, like Psalm 23, which we sang this morning, it's, it's actually an image of blessing. And there's other places where that's the case. But often the cup in Old Testament literature is connected with wrath, God's wrath, and the image of somebody drinking God's wrath. Um, so here it's much more negative, as it is in many places uh, in the Psalter and elsewhere. Okay, So the wicked will drink uh, 
the dregs uh, of God's wrath. Um, so there's, I included some passages there where it's a metaphor for justice um, frequently in Scripture. So, so I don't know. Uh, this is rather short psalm. Tell me what kinds of questions or comments you have. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's that's a good question. That's kind of a different image. So there, that could be a place actually where a person could go to flee and get refuge from a uh, from a an avenging kinsman or something. It was also a place where blood was sprinkled for certain sacrifices. But that's not so much associate horns associated with with um, royalty and with a posture of either humility or arrogance. Uh, here, I think the horn is clearly associated with the idea of exalting one's own horn. Um, the stories in the first six chapters of Daniel come to mind. Okay, so there we get this rising, you get this undulation of rising and falling. Uh, so these pagan kings that try and um, arrogate to themselves prerogatives that they shouldn't, like building a statue and expecting everybody to bow down and show veneration to it. And um, so, um, so there are the ideas, you're exalting your own horn, you're exalting, you're tooting your own horn to be a little playful, all right? <laughs> and uh, in, a, in, a, in a, not a justified way. I mean, the biblical definition of humility, remember, is not thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. It's thinking rightly about ourselves, okay? And, uh, but in that case, um, you remember, for example, Nebuchadnezzar is wandering around in the palace and um, uh, showing off all his uh, things that he built and got by his own hands. Right? So I think... I think I think probably to, to uh, pull those two images apart and, and just think of, of it as either representing um, right royal exaltation. For example, um, often it talks about David's horn. We're talking about David's throne, David's majesty. Well, because he's appointed to be a type of Christ and he's appointed to be uh, the righteous king over the monarchy. Um, um, of course, he was just a mere human, and, and he blows it on several occasions. But nevertheless, often the scriptures talk about exalting the horn of David. But this is against self-exaltation. Did you have a question? The Hebrew word is keren. Everybody say keren. Right. So, uh, so here, yeah, it's, it's just uh, an appropriate translation of that. And it's more, it's more figurative than, say, the way you were leading us in the, in the, in the um, uh, literal horns coming off the altar where they would sprinkle blood or where a refugee would try and cling in order to be safe from an avenger. 
right? No, I only meant that in a figurative sense. Yeah. So they have other words for horns uh, that were actually literal horns, like shofar. Maybe you've seen pictures of this great big long horn that they would announce for the beginning of a festival and that kind of thing. But no, this is more figurative. And I don't know, I could be wrong on this. I don't know. But I don't think there is the image of like the Viking warrior with the horns. And so that's how I got attached with royalty either. I don't think. So I think it just becomes a figurative expression. So this is back to reading our scriptures rightly. What do the scriptures literally mean? They literally mean whatever the author literarily meant for it to mean, <laughs> which may not mean literalistically. Okay? As the heart pants, so my heart longs for you. So are we deer? No, we're not deer. You know, that's a simile. Um, so, you know, the more we can get tuned into those kinds of figurative images, the better. Other questions, comments? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I can't remember my historical books there. Daniel, do you remember? Ah, warrior students, when you need them to flank you. <laughs> I think you're right, but I can't come up with a name. That's right. No, that's good. Uh, maybe it was closer than the city of refuge. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I can't come up with the, the narrative on that, but I think you're right. There was. And the follow-up question I don't, I don't have an opinion on. Good. But see, I love those kinds of questions because now it'll bother me and I'll go look it up. And then next time I won't be stunned. So it's okay. All right. So maybe a fruitful line of discussion, something I've been thinking about along these lines, is, um, so I say towards the end here, ultimately Psalm 95 teaches us about the infinite danger of opposing Christ as king. Also, it communicates that there is an implicit liability and risk of denying our Lord in an age of increasing countercultural pressure from the world. How can I make such a claim? Well, this is what scripture itself asserts. So uh, one of the students was asking me this week, we have what's called a readiness for ministry seminar that goes on at school. Uh, you know how engineers go to conferences and they network with businesses as the graduates get towards the end of their degrees or whatever. So I guess this is somewhat like that on a lower scale. Um, since we only have a handful of students, but the OP, Orthodox Presbyterian Church Brass, comes out from Philadelphia, and then they run this educational weekend where they give the students little um, case studies to do, <coughs> and also they get a little short time for exhortation um, and that kind of thing. So one of the students was, was saying, I've been assigned Psalm 16. Uh, love to hear your thoughts on this, Professor Estelle, you know. So, uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to give away the, uh, the ballpark, but I, I didn't want him to make some serious gaffe. So I said, uh, well, make sure you mention the resurrection. And then if you remember from the Pentecost sermon a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Peter actually quotes Psalm 16 and applies uh, Psalm 16 to David uh, being vindicated in resurrection. 
So don't miss that, okay? That's a long about way of saying, it's sneaking a little principle in. Um, whenever you're looking at the Psalter, you always want to check to see if the New Testament quotes the Psalter, uh, the Psalm that you're dealing with. Because this may be a new idea for you, but probably not in this church. Um, but if it is, that's okay. Um, however the apostles interpret the psalm, it's absolutely incumbent upon you to interpret it the same way. In other words, that's apostolic authority. Okay? So, um, so if... Peter interprets Psalm 16 as teaching about the resurrection, particularly of Christ, then we're bound, not because we're apostles, but we're bound by the apostles' teaching to also interpret it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, not sometimes, not all the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament, so then it becomes a little bit more difficult and complicated, and you can ask Daniel about the rest of that, okay, later, just to keep them sharp. And uh, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so this psalm is actually probably alluded to in Revelation 14, back to the point I was making, um, that um, I think one of the main things, this is not a very popular message, but maybe that's all the more reason why we have to bring it off the shelf and dust it off. Um, you know, I've alluded to that several times in the pulpit. It's just, you know, maybe you're not getting out much, you know, <laughs> uh, in the sense of hanging out with like-minded people, but if you're rubbing shoulders with people outside the church, and I would go so far as to say people inside the church, broad, broadly defined, uh, this is not a popular message. Uh, people don't like to talk about sin these days. Um, people don't like to talk about God's judgment. Um, um, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, I've been having a conversation, which looks like it'll be an extended conversation, uh, with somebody uh, who was saying, well, Brian, you probably have a different opinion. Just to bring up one issue, I'm not singling this out. We could bring up a number of illustrations, you know, on same-sex marriage. You know, I probably have a different opinion than you do. And um, that really bothered me. I had a very sleepless night because this person is a professing Christian. And um, so I proceeded to challenge this person and say, hey, let's have, a, let's have an epistolary uh, relationship and talk about this, uh, this claim uh, that you made. And, um, and, I, and I'll just be honest. So, so uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pounce on you but she perceives this as my superior ability or something. Um, I'm not going to pounce on you. I just I want to have an extended conversation. And uh, because I think that um, it's uh, not charitable or loving God or loving neighbor uh, to declare morally neutral what he has clearly declared to be sin. Oh my goodness, she did not like that. <laughs> but... Now we have this little epistolary, you know, relationship going back and forth. And, um, but, um, um, you know, I've said even here from the pulpit or whatever, it's, 
it's um, more and more, um, week by week, month by month, and it's probably not going to get better any sooner, um, a right declaration of the Orthodox faith, and especially in these ethical categories, is construed as a hate crime. Is this just me, or do you all experience this too? Okay. Right. I mean, it's, it's becoming the fishbowl in which we're living now. And, um, um, but what's interesting, you know, when I look at the psalm, and it says um, uh, in Revelation 14, verse 10 specifically, it probably alludes to Psalm 75, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Okay, well, that's too close to be, you know, not at least a, a subtle citation, if not direct allusion, okay? And um, so I say in order to understand this allusion to Psalm 75, it's important to look at the fuller context of Revelation 14. Well, then you look at that, you see in verse 8, Revelation 14, you may want to turn there, it says, a second angel followed, said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So remember, Babylon becomes like code. Somewhat Nineveh and Assyria are code for this as well, but especially Babylon. Not just literally Babylon, but the Babylon becomes code for evil anti-God city that wars against the people of God. Not merely the one to whom, you know, Israel went into exile, uh, but also the one who's constantly warring against God's people and militating against them. Um, um, So I say Babylon becomes code word for any society that dominates God's people by ungodly social, political, and pagan religious practices. Um, And that's probably uh, what it would communicate to this audience in Revelation, who's... um, reading Revelation 14, they probably would have plugged in Rome, tyrannical Rome, uh, depending on when you see the book of Revelation written. I mean, remember, some of the emperors that are ruling broadly during the time uh, that Revelation was being cooked up and finally written, it's probably very late, one of the latest books in the New Testament, but nevertheless, there's already been a history of hardcore persecution, including the likes of Nero, which, if you remember, um, placed Christians on um, um, petards and sticks and poured oil over them to light them up in order to, you know, give, a, in his view, a nice ambience to his backyard. Um, so, uh, and, you know, largely responsible for the gladiator games and this kind of thing, uh, which Christians were often persecuted. So... Um, Anyway, um, the cup of God's wrath there in Revelation is a frequent illustration in the Old Testament for God's righteous anger being poured out, as previously mentioned. The point John makes is that these are consequences for those who would cast their lot with Babylon, the beast, and dragon. Um, If anyone worships the beast, the image receives the mark in his forehead or in his hand, those who worship the beast and its image, and if anyone receives the mark of the name. Um, So I guess the question I thought it might be good since we have a little bit of time is, how do you communicate that 
to people around about us. So, you know, um, and keep the conversation going. I mean, this is, this is a hard word, but, um, you know, I was talking to one of your URC pastors a couple of weeks ago who was visiting uh, for the conference and all uh, up at Westminster and, and uh, you know, was sharing about a personal time in my life where I had to basically communicate to someone very dear to me, um, you know, the truth. That somewhat communicated here, you know, in this psalm. And, and, um, and I, my words at that time were, I'm not going to equivocate on this. Because that's treason. <laughs> I have a higher allegiance than I do to you, as much as I love you, the person to whom I'm talking. And so I'm not going to equivocate on this. And this brother looked across and said, you did the most loving thing. Because if you didn't communicate that, you wouldn't have been. How, 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 I guess I want to ask the open end, how do you communicate that in our culture today when often, you know, Tolerance is everything, except your comes in tolerance. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Am I clear, or is that too rambling? No. Yeah. I would, I would like it to the reversal, because here we are today. The issue of tolerance is now going over and over again. We have to tune in and No, I think that's very helpful. I mean, because some of you are probably by your profession even limited in what you can engage at work and say and that kind of thing. And um, so, and then, yeah, you're absolutely right. Audience analysis, everything. Um, that's what's hard for me these days in dealing with Christians outside our Napart churches where they don't even accept the authority of Scripture. And so it's almost like you have to start at these baby fundamentals, <laughs> uh, that, you know, you can't throw this text out, or you can't throw this, you know, under the bus and not, and not reckon with it. Um, any other thoughts? Can everybody hear that? That's a really good comment. So people get upset so easily you can't even get to the point where you have a substantive discussion. Has that been your experience? Are you a college student? Okay. Where do you go, if you don't want me to ask? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, right. So that's why I asked. I read your list of college students, and I was just trying to plug in where you go. Beautiful piece of property. <laughs> I went to a Catholic university, too. So, uh, so anyway, great education, too. But I can imagine the conversations you have down there. And uh, yeah, even at a place of you know, faith-based education. So how do you keep people at the table? So I'll share something. Um, this is a little more uh, abstract. It's hard to articulate. And I had to learn it through the school of hard knocks, but I think it's really important to answer your question. Well, all these comments, but I think people, especially outside the church, 
who are entrapped in some of these egregious sins that we're, you know, confronted with. They can sniff out arrogance and smugness a mile away. But they also can sniff out heartfelt compassion and, um, um, you know, an attitude, but for the grace of God, there I would go too. Um, now, sometimes I don't read blogs. I don't have time for blogs unless somebody tells me, you know, I need to read a certain blog. Um, or I'm trying to find out a backstory of an author that I'm engaging. Sometimes I'll read a blog. And, um, but you've got you to be really careful with this because, you know, sometimes, especially with people who are, who are struggling with gender identity or, or same-sex orientation or practice or whatever, um, you know, if you come across as compassionate, um, they, can, they can take that as arrogance and smugness as well. So it's, it's really hard to describe this. But if you haven't gotten to a point, like when I was going to university, my wife and I were at University of Oregon, uh, Berkeley of the Northwest, very liberal. And um, we had all kinds of friends that were caught up in homosexual practice. Some we didn't know about, some we did know about and discovered. And we, we saw conversions, you know, like friends who later we learned, people who stood up in our wedding were practicing homosexuals and then they went off the reservation and left the faith. And then their lovers got converted and they actually became communicant members. I mean, it was an amazing time. Um, and, um, but I think the lesson of hard knocks I learned there was not just what you communicate and being able to win an argument, but how you communicate. People can really pick it up. Like when I've spoken at men's conferences, I go, do you believe you could really engage in that sin? It's like, well, no way. It's like, you don't understand sin yet. <laughs> Unless you believe, but for the grace of God, there I could go too. People will sniff that out a mile away. But if they sense that you believe that about your doctrine of human depravity and and, and the absolute fundamental dependence upon God's grace for ethical conformity to his law, people pick up that, too. And a lot of times you can keep them at the table, even though you're making these hardline statements. Yeah. Right. 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 Right, yeah. For whom much has been forgiven, there's much love possible, right? Yeah. Other thoughts, questions about this passage or this psalm?
Angela? Um, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> because um, students catch attitudes as well as content. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> we, I guess, I don't mean to be glib, but we try and live, live it, and hopefully it comes out in our speech or interactions or responding to questions. Um, and, um, you know, and, and that may mean sometimes students observing the way we respond and give dignity to people when asked questions, hopefully, or respect. But also I think Hopefully they see it in our church members, our, our churchmanship. Uh, I'll give you an example. So a couple of years ago, I was getting ready to go to General Assembly, which is like your synod, okay? So it's our highest adjudicatory. And I knew there was an appeal coming up uh, for a minister who was censured for speaking uh, very rashly about another minister and using some words that, uh, to describe this other ministry he shouldn't, and so he was censured by his presbytery. Now, we have different levels of censure just like you do. So he wasn't being excommunicated, but he was being, I forget what level, like second down, you know, basically reprimanded and rebuked, but publicly for his, um, what should I say, uh, vitriolic language against another minister. So he was appealing that. Now, I knew this person... Um, I'm answering your question by way of telling a story. Poor Daniel, he knows I do this all the time, but it has a point. Uh, so so um, I knew this person whose case we were going to adjudicate and whose complaint we were going to deal with. So a complaint, just like in your civil courts, uh, basically he's appealing to have it turned over. Okay, And we have the power that's not like a power play. We, we've been given the authority to repeal that or to uphold it. So anyway, I, I knew this person and that sometimes he doesn't have much of a filter and perhaps, you know, deserves this censure. So I went into the assembly, and hopefully all your elders go into their consistory meetings with this attitude too, knowing my mind but not having my mind made up which is a good way to enter a conversation with whomever you're talking. <laughs> and um, so um, the more we got into the details of all this, the more we found out this guy was unfairly censured. The other minister about whom he was speaking uh, so firmly and, and with such vitriol was making these bombastic statements on internet that were spread and cast all over the you know, through social media around the world. Um, you see, I'm not mentioning names, even though all this is public, but I'm trying to be discreet. You know, the likes of which, for example, he's a real culture warrior. So, for example, when one of the hurricanes hit, um, hit Florida, he went on the air, and, and in my opinion, through an act of self-aggrandizement, <laughs> made 
the claim that God was judging Florida because of its tolerance of the homosexual community. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is a, this is a minister in my denomination who, at least so far, is in good standing. And, and so what had happened is he would make these kind of bombastic statements, had done this for years, and this other guy whose appeal or censure we were dealing with um, um, was just trying to like red flag this and get the church, the regional church, the presbytery, equivalent to your classes, to do something about it. Discipline this guy. Tell him to reel it in. I mean, this is embarrassing. Um, so, and immediately before the assembly, there were uh, people that were um, contacting me of a younger generation, millennials, who knew about this, and it was scandalous to them. Short story long, we got into the assembly, and all this came to light. And we basically upheld this minister's uh, appeal, the one who had used to vitriolic of language, in a private meeting where he was trapped and recorded. <laughs> and, and, and then it, it all came out. And uh, basically, we exposed this other culture warrior guy for all his bombastic statements, and, and we overturned it, much to the consternation of our brothers in that part of the country who were trying to circle the wagons. My point in that is, um, the easier thing, just let the censure go and let this guy be censured. But you know what? I was like, I'm not always elated when I leave General Assembly. This is all being recorded. Justin. <laughs> no, I'm not always elated when I lead General Assembly. Most of the time I am, but sometimes, you know, there's, there's an underbelly out there in the church, and sometimes things happen that you just wish did not happen and not very becoming of the courts of Jesus Christ. But man, oh, we served justice that day. And, and it, was, it, was, it was great. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing that justice was served. And that bombastic guy who was making all these statements, when he saw what we did, he left, took his church with him. And I, and I kind of wanted to say, this probably sounds really mean, but don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> I don't want that in our church. That's unbecoming of presenting the gospel in all its fullness to people as far as sweet mercy and grace as well as God's judgment. That's not the way you communicate God's judgment, though, in my opinion. So how do we teach our students? By ponying up and being manly churchmen and, and exercising discipline and, and trying to rule on principle and justice and, and charity and love. And sometimes that means overturning a case. Sometimes it means saying, knock it off. That's inappropriate for a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or for a member, you know. All right, five minutes. <laughs> Did that was that clear? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that's. I don't know. We probably do it in a hundred small ways, and we probably come far short of it sometimes. But yeah, if if we we're only going to be as good in the church as especially our officers are, and so. Uh, Daniel, don't get wobbly knees and go the other direction. 
But, you know, it, our church will only be as good as our officers are. Um, and so it's, it's really important for our ministers to speak and behave in becoming ways. Yeah, it is. It is. Like even in this last couple of weeks, I wrestled with um, this conversation I'm having and um, with this person through an epistolary relationship. Um, but um, I prayed about it. I said, you don't get a pass on this. So. Well, let me pray and I'll excuse us. I think we're right up against the time and then the kids can come back. Psalm 76 next week, which takes a different twist on silence. So there's a handout uh, out in the foyer there. Uh, you can grab them. Father, thank you for um, the Psalter that you have given us and especially this small group that we're looking at. Uh, Lord, these are difficult matters and we know the more faithful we strive to be in this time and in this culture, the more we will chafe against uh, trends and what is trending. Uh, so we pray that you would give us the strength and the power to do so charitably, compassionately, but also firmly and, and never equivocating on the principles of your word and the truth that's contained therein. Uh, help us to be uh, always jealous uh, for reputations, um, uh, not only our own, as uh, our catechisms uh, extol us to do, uh, but especially for yours, O oh Lord, and uh, help us to do that in a winsome and, and loving, but nevertheless uh, firm and courageous way. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, see you next week. God willing.